You are listening to Teatro Mundilar. Welcome to Staging Cities, a new podcast series from Teatro Mundi, looking at the ideas on the intersection of stagecraft, architecture, and urban planning. This is the very first episode, and it is accompanying the very first volume of books we produced with NI10 publishers from Rotterdam, and that's Concretening Storytelling and the Future of Architecture. The book is now available from Teatro Mundi and also from NI10 Publisher, and it will be also available from many bookshops around UK, Europe and around the world. The volume is looking at the ideas of storytelling and architecture. It's thinking about the future, it's thinking about the paths between utopia and dystopia. It's asking questions where the narrative builds the city, perhaps it constructs its buildings ultimately. And to celebrate this book and to expand on the ideas that, that are being discussed across the pages in the stories that we commissioned from many writers, primary stories in fiction, I'll have the great pleasure to speak to six of the writers that contributed to Concrete and Ink, Storytelling and the Future of Architecture. And we will be discussing iconic structures within the city, the structures, the buildings that make the city. And we group them by typology. We'll be looking at the tower block, which is the subject of this very first episode that you're listening to now. Then, in the next episode, we'll be looking at the mall and the museum. And finally, in the third episode, we'll be looking at the more impermanent structures or falling down structures, such as the shed and the ruin. Thank you so much for being with us and thank you for listening. My name is Marta Mikalowska and I'm Associate Director at Teatro Mundi. I also had the great pleasure of editing Concrete and Ingen Storytelling and the Future of Architecture together with Justinian Trevion. And now I would like to welcome writer Alison Irvine and cartoonist Matthew Dooley into a conversation about the tower block. Both Alison's story and Matthew's graphic story that they contributed to the book are set in tower blocks. So I would like to welcome Alison, uh, who is a novelist and non-fiction writer. Her first novel, This Road is Red, was shortlisted for the 2011 Saltar First Book of the Year Award. And her f second novel was out only in November last year, November 2020, and that's Cut Step, and was published by Dead Ink. And she's also a writer in, art in the artist collective Recollective, and a tutor on a master's in creative writing at the University of Glasgow. But it'd be great to hear from you a little bit more, Alison, uh, about, about the kind of work you do. Sure. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, so I write fiction and nonfiction, and both, both practices involve talking to people for a start. So I um, say, so for the example, the, This Road is Red was based on the Red Road Flats in Glasgow. So I began by interviewing as many people as I could find that had either lived there or worked there. I interviewed someone as young as 13 and as old as 78. And I just had a, re a recorded chat, a little bit like we're doing now, um, asking for stories and memories and thoughts on on where they lived and, and what their lives were like. And then I what I always do is then I go home, I type up the 
the interview so I've got a transcript and it's good to hear the voices again um, then I show the transcript to the people I've interviewed say this is what I have are you happy with it um, and then after that I go away and write either my fiction or my non-fiction but they they both kind of borrow the same sort of techniques of fiction writing in that I have to try and find from a, a sort of multitude of little stories and anecdotes, I have to find stories that have narrative arcs, that have strong settings, that I have to make sure my characterization is is strong. So it's kind of the same for both fiction and non-fiction. And um, I guess the other thing to say about the way I work is I often work with other artists, which is quite nice, especially with my non-fiction work. I work with a photographer and an illustrator. So we look at the same kind of place, um, but from our different um, perspectives. And then we kind of combine it all at the end into sort of finished artwork. Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for, for telling us a little bit how, how your process of making work happens. Uh, and now I'll ask Matthew, but before I say that, I say that he's a cartoonist from the northwest of England. His debut graphic novel, Flake, won the 2020 Bollinger Everyone Wodehouse Prize uh, for comic fiction, the first graphic novel to win the prize uh, for its 20-year history. And uh, he contributed a graphic short story for, for the collection. Uh, we really wanted to have a, a piece that uh, that combines uh, visual and, uh, and narrative storytelling in, in, in a piece. Uh, we might hear an ice cream van, which was the subject <laughs> of uh, of Flake, because <laughs> uh, they're quite common where I where I live. <laughs> uh, but that would be probably a quite welcome interruption in this case. <laughs> uh, but in any case, please tell us a little bit, uh, Matthew, how how you develop your stories and how you work or how you got into uh, this kind of form of uh, storytelling. Yeah. So um, I guess my my stuff tends to to live in the same sort of place uh, somewhere between sort of the, the boring mundane and the absurd I find that's a really lovely sort of space that it sort of sparks off between the two and I think certainly I've had work published with uh, publisher and I've also self-published my own work and I think it tends to be focused on sort of a, on a time and a place normally a fictional time and a place um, as was Flake, and I think uh, that's sort of what attracted me. I think to to this particular project as well, I thought it, an opportunity to do to do just that. Well, brilliant! Thank you so much. Uh, well, we said the, the to to think about um, some iconic structures in the city throughout the series of podcasts, the kind of key spaces or key buildings. Uh, that form cities and, and city living. Uh, and in this conversation, as both of your stories are, are set in tower blocks, uh, that kind of gave us a really good pretext to, to talk to, to both of you uh, today. They, they are quite, uh, quite exciting buildings, the kind of concrete icons, uh, the post-war promise of, uh, of better living. And obviously they bring, um, bring books such as the High Rise by J.G. Ballard immediately, which has uh, ideas of utopia in, and dystopia going from one to another. But also these are quite, as you say, Matthew, they are quite mundane places which 
are very much part of the uh, part of the city. But now I would like to ask you a little bit more, Alison. What sparked the ideas um, and maybe the, the things that you were thinking about uh, when we sent you the brief to take to be part of Concrete and Ink? I think I think it's probably important to say that I've only written about one housing scheme, we say in Glasgow or a state, we might say in England. So the, the, the housing scheme that I know best is the Red Road Flats because I wrote a book on them. And the, the point of that book was to create a legacy because the flats were, we knew the flats were going to be demolished. And it was to record the stories and memories of people who'd lived or worked there over the, the decades from the 60s to 2012, the first one was demolished. So. I came at this project with the Red Road Flats specifically in mind. And I think the last time I did my interviews, because the book was published in 2011, the last time I did my interviews finished up about 2009, 2010. And and I've been in touch with quite a few of the people that I've interviewed ever since. And this was a chance for me to go back and say to them, right, well, I interviewed you nearly 10 years ago. How do you feel now? How do you feel now that they're gone? And now that you've got your kids are maybe a little bit older, what do your kids think about you having lived there? And do you feel the same as you did then? Are you nostalgic? Would you build them again if you had the opportunity? So it was a kind of, it was a retrospective in a way, I think, but the the, the brief was also something to do with kind of looking forward. (laughs) So I kind of tied myself a little bit in knots going backwards and forwards. But um, it was a, for me, it was a great chance to to chat again to to a couple of the people that I'd interviewed. I'm pleased that we gave the opportunity to to, to actually, in a way, write, obviously, a very tiny uh, um, follow-up for the... Uh, this road is red, but yeah, please add. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was great, and, and I, did, I don't know if I made myself life easy for myself because one is still very much fiction, fictionalized, although it's based entirely on truth, and one is absolutely non-fiction. But the names have been changed, so it was interesting. We had a discussion, didn't we, Marta, about how we could link them because um, they're they're quite different styles. So we ended up linking them by um, including fragments of original interview transcript, which I'm really pleased we did because my book's got that in it anyway as it goes along. And um, it just kind of, it sort of shows the, the workings of, of the material that I had to work with, the, the people's original words. Because um, I guess... We might talk about this later as well, but there's there's always that sort of disconnect when you as the writer are writing someone else's story. And I'm always aware that I'm coming at this with my own life, life experiences and sort of internalised prejudices and all, all that. So I, I, can, I, I write what people tell me, but it's coming through the filter of me as well. So I quite like the fact that I can show some of the words as well. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought that was actually quite powerful to, uh, for the for the listeners. Please get the book from Teatrum Mundi, teatrum-mundi.org/shop, and you will see that uh, we we in- in- included in a way the, the part of the raw material, and then the two different outcomes. There are two stories of two different characters. One which is, which is written in a in a in a fictional style, however, from. Uh, from the first person uh, present, as far as I remember, perspective, and then uh, we have a, 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 a non-fiction piece, which is telling a story of a, of another character, but that is told very much uh, by you, Alison, and and we could you could see how 
you can arrive at completely different outcomes f from from pretty much the same material, which was originally a recording of a of a conversation. But we will we'll leave this idea of the question of fact and fiction for a little bit. And now I'll ask uh, Matthew to tell us a little bit about how you approached uh, the brief. Well, yeah, so when I got the brief, I think I was instantly attracted to the word dystopia. I, I think it's one of the more, more interesting words in the English language. Um, but in contrast to utopia, and I don't think there are many more utopian ideas than, well, certainly in the past, the idea of the tower block, this, as you say, machine for better living. Um, and so I took that and I thought to try and make something which was, from the outset, very utopian. So it's meant to be this impossibly high tower block which would contain everything you could ever possibly need. But unfortunately, the lift is broken. So it's then, it's that, that thing, it's, it's utopia made dystopian by the, the unfortunate practicalities of, of real life. Uh, and it is, not, it is not a, you know, there is no real tower block like this anywhere in the world which spans miles and miles into the air. But it, it, it is, it's, it, that's, where the idea was. And so I thought, what happens if, yeah, what if the lift does break? What what happens if to, to these people who live in this place? And ultimately it's that it ends up being half empty, but then surprising things happen. Um, so the culmination of the story is, and I think, I think it's quite a hopeful thing in the end, that um, whilst people can plan or plan, you know, governments or states or whatever can plan, it tends to be the unexpected things on a sort of individual, personal level that actually make places livable. Um, and that's sort of how it, it ends, even though there is the, the shadow of, of demolition hanging over the, the whole thing. Yeah, I think I think that's quite fascinating. Uh, in a way, we probably can afford some spoilers in in this case. In this case, but the idea that actually it is in a way the nature in an unexpected place that brings uh, your characters together in a in a rather unexpected uh, friendship that develops. It's quite. I, I was I was really moved by your story. I have to say of of uh, of what actually provided hope at the end of this miles long uh, climb to the top of the of the tower yeah I, I think um that that's true it is it is meant to be ultimately hopeful and that i think oh god this is going to sound such a, a, a sappy soppy thing to say that ultimately the things that make life worth living tend to be relationships with people it isn't necessarily how how wonderful your buildings are as lovely as that can enhance your life of course it can but um it's yeah. It's the it's the unexpected sort of warmth which you find in in places. I think and nature, absolutely. I think one. You know, I live I live in the city, and as uh, I think you're quite lucky. I live in London that there are lots of open spaces which you can feel like you're not in the city. But if you are, we're talking about sort of high density living being crammed into places. If you don't have that. I think that is also something which can grind you down. But I think people need uh, access to nature. It's very easy to feel disconnected from it. And when you do feel connected to it, having not felt that for a long time, it really can be quite quite a powerful thing, I think. And that's part of it, 
part of the story as well, is this this yeah, endless concrete that culminates in in a, in a garden, ultimately. Um, yeah. And maybe we could hear Alison a little bit from your story. Sure. Okay. Well, it, it will probably chime a little bit with Matthew's because there is there's mention of um, I think in the bit that I'm going to read of lifts breaking down. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I'm going to read from I've called it Finley's story, and uh, he was born and bred at Red Road Flats, um, which is kind of in the northeast of Glasgow. See that flat? I am born there, 1968. Count 25 windows from the ground and you will find me and my big brother, my mum and dad, an inside toilet, electric heaters and a veranda. The rent is higher than our room and kitchen in Bridgeton, but my dad works and our neighbours work and people are pleased to be here, so it is the best of places to live. We live in one of the gleaming towers in the sky. They knocked my block down in 2012, but we won't get as far as that. A girl lives in one of the low-down houses and imagines the Red Road Flats are hotels. She thinks we have lots of friends. We do. See those children? I am one of those boys. We're out from nine in the morning till 10 at night, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 kids playing on four fields and a football pitch. We play tennis and squash against the gable ends. We head footballs thrown from windows and call it giant headers. We play Olympics, we play boxing, we make football goalposts from beer kegs or jumpers. I hear the click, click, click of players' boots on concrete after a long game. We pass girls playing elastics or piva. See, I have a good childhood, no sectarianism. I don't care who I play with, even if some of my mates go to All Saints and I go to the Albert. I have friends in all the blocks. We ride to the hills on bikes and boys will take birds' eggs and one boy takes a kestrel and keeps it on his veranda and we follow him to the field to watch him work it, just like in the film. See my mum on her veranda? She spots me on the field and knows I am safe. See other mothers? They think we're too far away. They don't like it. They wish for a low-down house with a front and back door. The lifts are soon trouble. Only two in our massive slab block. That's my mum stuck all night. That's me stuck and the firemen coming to rescue me, pulling me through the hatch at the top. Bikes, prams, shopping bags. There's, there's little room for all of us. Undertakers can't keep a coffin flat, so they lean it upright against a lift wall. When a lift breaks down, there are no stairs off the landing to climb down to the ground. So that's me knocking on somebody's door, asking to be let through to their flat to use the back stairs. Drug addicts will later drag the bodies of dead friends to these back stairs. But for now, the landings are sparkling. My mum checks the rotor and takes her turn. Kind neighbours set the lift doors to open at the pensioners' floors and have just enough time to run out to deliver their papers and run in before the doors close. Sometimes they step on mats laid across the landing to stop footprints muddying the freshly cleaned floors. I place soldiers on the landing. I play sabutio and boxing, and if we get chased for being too noisy, we gather in the sheds next to the flat's foyers. Here, we keep away from the weather. Here, girls set out jumble sale stalls on weekends. Here, we witness the death of a man who throws himself from a window, denims, rucksack, green khaki army jacket. Thank you so much for that, Alison. Uh, I, I'm quite uh, amazed how you've managed to put together in such a short piece of text so many ideas about what it, what it means to live in those kind of places and how 
how the kind of idealism and hope and that the utopia actually quickly changes into something else of us you know that's we're talking probably 20 years 30 years in, in these buildings how they they change completely but then still they are in the imagination they are still kind of iconic buildings in in glasgow and there have been films and uh, and stories told about this but i don't think anyone's quite uh spend so much time with the residents and actually try to cover uh, their story to, to this degree. Um, but maybe now, Matthew, it, would be, it doesn't make sense to read a graphic story <laughs> for a podcast. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the process of, of actually developing the visual material, what it actually, what it takes to, to create a graphic story and, you know, what's the process? Um I mean, part of it, this is perhaps not the answer you're looking for, I find it quite mysterious. Um, as in, it, I, I do it, I just, I sit down and eventually it just comes out. Um, but I can probably uh, <laughs> elaborate a little bit more. Maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, can elaborate more. It normally... Take us to your studio. Yeah. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> um, to be honest, no, for, for any story I ever do, it normally begins with me just going for a walk. Um, I'm walking until the idea is there. And then I'll go out for some more walks and then the story gets sort of filled out. And then I don't, I don't write it very much down until it comes time to, to, to actually write. Um, so that, I do worry that I've forgotten more good ideas than I've remembered. But anyway, so be it. Um, and in, in this case, uh, I think what I, I liked about the, the idea of the tower block is that I mean, graphic fiction generally rewards brevity. Um, you don't have as many words to play with as you would do in, in a piece of prose. And so the, the tower block is this self-contained place, which I think does actually lend itself to to this particular story. But also, um, from a visual point of view, the dimensions of a page are actually quite nice. So that, that, that sense of working your way through a, a place of, of that sort of rectangular nature is actually um, suited quite well. Um, so in terms of that, of actually then the visuals, the story is sort of in place by the time I start to, to consciously think about visuals. However, you're never not thinking about them. It's, it's very difficult to pass, really. Every time, every piece of dialogue or sense of something happening, I would imagine visually anyway. Um, and it's difficult to know what other people's inner monologues and in a world alike, but mine is a pretty visual one. So if I'm thinking about a conversation between two people, I will imagine them actually speaking. I can see them in my head. So when it comes to actually drawing, it's sort of a, uh, a case of just what was in there anyway sort of just pops out. Um, and so if you think, I, I found it for, certainly for writing longer pieces, that if you think about them long enough, Questions of character design, which I know some people get you know, uh, spend a long time on. I think by the time you've thought about them so much, it's sort of it should be there. They they live in your head, and so hopefully, when you come to draw them, they are something like the person that you've been imagining. Um, that's sort of how I would write. Um, I think it might be different for each, each story I do. I don't really know, um, but that—that's certainly how I did um, this this particular this story. And I say, uh, 
it was all sort of when it came to to, to the writing to the literal writing and the drawing, it was sort of already there. Now there is some planning which goes on because you have to to work out um, boring things like how many panels are going to be on this page, and you sort of want visual. It's not particularly funny, but you want visual punchlines. So when you turn over a page, you read comics in two different ways. You read them top left to bottom right. Um, but you also read them all at once. So when you look, open a two-page spread, you're reading that as a whole before you actually read each individual panel. And so it should all make sense visually. Um, and also, you don't want to make spoilers too obvious. Uh, so if there is something interesting about to happen, it's actually, it works better if it's over the page and you get that, um, the, the impact that way. And that, that's perhaps the trickiest part of the whole thing is the, the story and the visuals, great, but it's actually fitting all together. Like a, uh, it's like a puzzle, really. And that's what makes editing comics, once you've started drawing them, really, really hard because you can't just pop in an extra page here because it shifts everything. So um, it's something which, yeah, it, the, the planning part is the most, probably the most taxing part. And I guess that sort of comes at the end of the writing part and before the proper ink on the page bit. But that's the, that's the I think that's where the, the sort of experience of, of writing comics comes into play, is at that point. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I actually, I never, I wasn't ever aware of how you actually do this kind of, so in a, in a way it probably has a little bit similar similarity to say how you storyboard a, a film, but you obviously, the story ends up being only a hidden tool to something, and it never ends up being their work. <laughs> yeah, well, the the thing, like with any any medium, comics has its its strengths and its weaknesses, and it's those are the things that make them in, make a medium interesting. So, with comics, you can't write that much. There just there isn't space. I mean, no one lives long enough to to write a nine hundred page graphic novel because it's insane. You know, it would, it would kill you. But it does mean that, yes, you have to be very try to have to be very pithy. But you can also do visual things that you can't do in any other medium. So, I think in this particular piece, it's having the same place side by side in different periods of time, and that's I don't think you really do that in any other type of fiction. That you can take that when I talk about reading the whole page at once, with a, that that's something you can do say with comics, which is is pretty unique, and I think that. It's important to to try and draw on a on a medium strengths in that way. I think that's a, that's in a way that's obviously a tower block is an idea of building. You can you can draw on a page in that way because it's made out of all these units. And as a as a writer, uh, like you know how you Alison, how you've uh, been writing about Red Rock Flats, you kind of obviously represent most of the building on one page. It just becomes too large. Uh, to give a sense of it, but in a way that this idea that you can open a page and you have this grid of a of a of a place and it kind and it's quite telling of how life there might be unfolding and what kind of relationships might form. But I have to tell you that I'm particularly fascinated uh, by tire blocks 
uh, it's, and it comes back for me as a kind of a childhood dream of living in one, uh, which my parents would probably just pull their hair out because that would be their idea of, of hell, especially coming from a commu communist country, uh, where, which um, built a lot of these uh, post-war, particularly as, as, a, as a country. Uh, kind of significantly destroyed throughout the war and building these buildings that initially perhaps were meant to only last 20, 30 years and uh, many of them are still standing. But I love the idea of the grid. I love the idea of straight lines. I love the idea of the lift. This was something whenever we went to visit uh, my mother's friends in the lift, I was very excited to push the buttons and be transported to another floor in that way. And, and seeing grids of doors and, and maybe some sort of order while I grew up in a hundred-year-old um, timber house that, were, that didn't have a straight line. <laughs> so it was a kind of a dream of, of order within chaos, but obviously that's probably an illusion of what, what happens in tower blocks <laughs> and, and tower blocks. Uh, within the grid uh, uh, there is probably as much chaos as in any other place. But one of the questions that is critical to this book and something that we really wanted to explore uh, through these ideas of, uh, of storytelling was this, this idea that ultimately, perhaps, um, cities and, and buildings are constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed by storytelling that, that ultimately narrative sits be behind all of all of the decisions making and and again tower block is is perhaps the space that can can perhaps uh, illustrate these ideas uh, most powerfully obviously my interest in childhood interest in tower block drives me to commissioning writing about tower blocks and wanting to hear more stories about them uh, of how they've gone from uh, ideal places to perhaps not so ideal places but then those stories of of uh, of ghettos and transformations are also very much driven by narrative. Maybe, Alison, after studying such a long time, these narratives, you must see how, how the perception from different people and, and sources of power have influenced what happened. Yeah, that, that just really reminded me of the, the kind of the the shared experiences that people had and they were either shared good experiences or bad experiences because when I was um, researching the book I thought there's no way I can write about so many people and but I thought if I if I just if I have lots and lots and lots of details then they will hopefully chime with people who've either lived there or who have lived in tower blocks but a lot of people told stories about the bathwater sloshing in the bath when when it was windy. They talked about the hurricane of 1968 that everyone had a story about. They talked about the pigeons that shat in the in the rooms and, and you know eventually they had to put up pigeon nets. They talked about the bingo, the, the pubs and so there was a lot of shared experience but then they also talked about it's really sad but pretty much, I don't know if it was the same story, but everyone had a suicide story, everyone had a story of someone they knew that um, got into drugs, it was heroin in the 80s, they had stories of being burgled, of living next door to housebreakers, and and so I think when you're, if you're building 
new high density living spaces you've just got to try and, and make sure i know this is a bit of a cliche but you have to make sure that the shared experiences are the good ones they are of the roof gardens at the top you know there are they they are of places where kids can play together um, and where parents can feel that their children are safe um, they are where it's you know it's easy to cross a road to get to the shops or the park or whatever so i think um yeah, that's. I think that's what I sort of took from it. That there was a lot of there was a lot of good stuff associated with high-rise living, but in the end, too much of the of the, of the bad and the negative. And that ultimately brought them down. Yeah, I think with these particular flats, they it was too expensive to um, renovate because a lot of them were well, all of them were covered in asbestos because they were made out of steel, so they were fireproofed with asbestos. So it was just deemed. And, and, and also they, because of the sort of economic decline in the 80s, they moved a lot of people in there who were kind of least able to maintain them in a way because they had, you know, the, the, a lot of them were out of work, a lot of them had social problems, mental health problems. So it, it just became, you talked about the word ghetto, it, it became an area that they just decided, right, we will we'll flatten it and start again in a way. So in a in a way, the 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 idealism, the narrative of of giving people a better life, brought them up, and then uh, the 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 circumstances that created a completely different narrative uh, brought them down eventually, and they were they were obviously replaced by different housing. I don't know if Matthew, do you have uh, something to add on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I've never lived in a tower block, so I think that is that's important to me to say. But it does strike me as it's a classic example of you know it's a well-worn cliche but the the unintended consequence of well-meaning actions as you say things like asbestos and and it goes for not just tower books but sort of like new towns and things like that isn't it? where people were displaced from communi- existing communities somewhere else and because it was all planned out it's you've had what they had one go at say at, at deciding what this is going to be like and then, of course, if it isn't quite right, then well, you have to start again, don't you? If you've, if you've built the whole thing at once, then you have to start again if it's wrong or if it doesn't work. And yeah, that, that, that's sort of my, my impression. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a shame because it's such a potentially wonderful idea. Um, I mean, you look, I guess you look at, at uh, in London, which is full of sort of the good and the bad. I mean, as we, as we can, as the last sort of two years have, have profoundly shown us, um, sort of the worst of what can happen with high-rise living. But yeah, I think that that, that was sort of my takeaway. That it is, it's it's it is just that it's the uh, unintended consequences of of decisions taken often with good uh, good intentions. Mm. Yeah, of course, we can't ignore the idea, the, the, the questions of what, what happens in this kind of spaces when uh, when the warnings are, are ignored and 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 it and it, they can kill <laughs> ultimately uh, people, and and that kind of probably brings mm. again to this idea of of narrative on a different level 
to the idea that how the, the occupants of this kind of places are being characterized in the media or within the thinking of uh, governments or local authorities. And perhaps that brings to this question of, of uh, who tells the story and, and who, are, who are the characters in, in these situations. And obviously, Alison spending so much time in a play, you know, working with uh, with nonfiction and 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 actually doing a, a field work within spaces that you describe. Obviously, you go way beyond uh, the characterization of a, of a housing estate as a as a terrifying place populated by people who do not deserve any any kind of more in depth conversation with them and being characterized as a either scroungers who, who, who take on government benefits or people who are beyond say, being saved uh, by some sort of well-meaning policies. I'm not sure if you have anything else to add to this idea of you know, who tells the story. Yeah, well, I'm all, as I said at the beginning, I'm always aware of that because I am, I'm telling the story of other people and ideally they would tell their own story, but it, it but I have, the, I, I justify it to myself because I have the skills and the craft of a novelist and a writer, so I can put that into words. But then I was trying to think about other sort of um, depictions of housing estates in literature or film. And I mean, Red Road Flats were in Andrea Arnold's film Red Road, which I really like the film, but the way the flats are portrayed is really, really bleak. It's, it, they're just, they're, so I, I didn't, I didn't like the way the flats were portrayed, but then there was something, I don't know if you saw it, something recently, actually it wasn't recently, but I just watched it recently. It was a, a series called Save Me written by Lenny James um, and starring him. And it had Stephen Graham and Suran Jones, and that's set on a housing estate which is the kind of backdrop, but it's it was done so well because it was really idiosyncratic. You had, you know, kids on bikes or blowing bubbles or, you know, in the middle of a, I think it was a playground or a basketball pitch, there'd just be this random kid in a boat or a swimming pool, you know, and just everybody getting on with their daily lives sort of uh, along the corridors. And, and, and so I was impressed with the way they depicted that, um, that estate. I'm trying to think of, there's a book called um, Our Fathers by Andrew O'Hagan, which I have to say I haven't read for a long time, but I did read that when I was writing Red Road. And that, again, is another, it, it, it looks at the kind of the aspirational ideas of building high rises in the first place and, and the kind of the utopian desire to make better housing. But then, you know, it does fall apart. Um, and that was that was good. But um, I would, I'd be interested to read... Almost books where high-rise living is kind of normal as opposed to, yeah, like crime-ridden or, you know, some of these other clichés that make the, the tabloids. I, I have to add here that the main character in my novel that I'm currently writing live on the 10th floor of a, of a Polish uh, seaside town uh, tower block. It is not a ghetto and it's not an ideal space either. It's just a, a place high above and and that the idea is that this uh, in, for someone that wants to be a, a slight reckless uh, in a in a in a city uh, as one that's not uh, can this character cannot 
go in a, and live in a cabin in, in the woods. Uh, but she chooses to live um, in a small flat high above everyone else and have this incredible view of the sea. Uh, it is a normal tile block. It's, there, there's nothing sinister and there's nothing glamorous to it. <laughs> That sounds good. It's reminded me also of, um, I'm plugging one of your other books here, Marta, but the, the book um, Homemade, and there's a, a story, I think it's non-fiction, and I can't remember the writer, but it's about a couple who live in a in a fairly high block, apartment block in um, Aldgate. And I thought that was brilliantly done, That just that uh, insight into their lives. And they talked about the fluorescent lights of their corridors and the view and so that was Caspar uh, Lang uh, Ebersgaard. Yes, that's one. That's his story, and it's actually a piece coming from uh, a non-fiction research into lighting. Out of all things, it was particularly looking at the ideas of how um, high-rise buildings are lit, and uh, not only outside and inside. Uh, what kind of relationship with, they have with the natural light, but also with artificial light, and the idea of how corridors of the the flats within the so-called poor door section of the the same of that building are brightly lit to prevent any potential crime happening to the sections or in a more affluent uh, section of the block having much dimmer lighting and cozier climate in the corridors so that was that was his particular research in into this uh, how the space is constructed depending on um, who is deemed to live live in this particular spaces. Mm, I loved it. It's a brilliant story, certainly. Matthew, do you want to add anything to this idea of who tells the story and who are the characters in these settings? Yes, yeah, so, so certainly with the story I did, I was quite mindful not to to do that, to, to have drug addicts and criminals, and that was fairly normal fairly normal people to pay for us. The, the, the main character is pretty much a, an everyman who could, it could have been anywhere really, he just happened to live in a in a tower block. Um, yeah, I think it would be very easy to to go down that that road, as, certainly from a sort of a fiction point of view. Yeah, I was quite yeah, I'd say mindful not to, not to do that. Perhaps this brings me to this um, question of similarities and differences between uh, two high-rise structures in the city, the tower block that we've been talking about, and also perhaps it's, say, let's say, more fancy cousin, uh, the skyscraper. And I'm just wondering, would one say that the Barbican estate uh, in the city of London, is this a group of tower blocks or a group of skyscrapers? Perhaps, Matthew, you would like to respond to this question first. Yeah, I think that's the, the Barbican's what came to mind for me to prepare for us when we were talking about this, about the sort of people who live there. I mean, it, it, that would be considered a, you know, a dream, luxury place to live. And it's, it's such, a, as far as I could tell, is that's essentially context. I, I mean, I would not describe the Barbican as a skyscraper. I think I would describe it as a, uh, a tower block but one that has been beautifully finished inside with you know, extremely, extremely expensive mid-century sort of uh, fittings. Um, so yeah, I th but I think that's abso absolutely true. And are you, London, I think, is a really interesting one in this, in this sense. When we talk about high-density living, can, can it be high-density living when luxury tower blocks don't have anybody living in them? Um, I mean, there's that, that thing about the, these, these 
you know, endless luxury flats, which have all been bought up by people abroad who just want to put their money into somewhere safe. Um, and th yeah, that's enough. They're about these empty places, not empty because they've been abandoned, but because they are safe places for oligarchs to keep their money. Um, I, I think is a really interesting contrast between between that and sort of yeah a tower block which might have been say social housing, um, and yeah I think maybe that maybe that would be a nice companion piece about uh, an empty tower block which has essentially been bought up as a as an investment piece and never has anyone barely been been in these flats I would presume I mean people don't come to see them do they they just they just buy them off spec um, before they're even built it's a it's a it's such a curious London is such a curious place for things like that I think. And I guess the difference between these buildings is only fine. And uh, over time, they might not actually look that different than each other. <laughs> Alison, do you want to add anything to that? <laughs> Thinking of those two, two actual words describe the same thing. Yeah, I, I suppose, I suppose it, it just made me think that perhaps tower blocks aren't the best places for families in the light of COVID when everybody's needed access to green space, when there's been problems with overcrowding and being cooped up yeah maybe we just maybe planners need to rethink well if we're going to build either private or social housing who who would live in it? Uh, it maybe families are better closer to the ground so that's just that that came to mind for me then thank you so much for that yeah that's a that's definitely a good point how how one lives and in a way, uh, that naturally brings me to this question of future. Of course, we, in the book, we we are playing with the ideas of future and playing with the idea of, of uh, as we've said in the, in the brief, trying to find a path between utopia and, and dystopia and, and neither demo, demonize one type of space uh, or glorify it at the same time. But maybe uh, you would like to Tell us a little bit, maybe Matthew first, uh, about this idea of what do you think the city would look like in the future? And is there a place for tower blocks still within the next century or this century later on? I think that's a really, really interesting question and thrown into to sharp relief um, over the last 18 months about what, what people's lives in cities are going to look like. And I think we have this, this is a real age thing here I think it gets split there's right down the middle there's people I think if once you have a family all of a sudden say working from home you don't need to be in the city you can live in the, the suburbs into the, into the countryside or whatever and that's great but you're if you're starting your career I think you want to be seeing people you want to be in amongst things and I would think it would be an amazing amazing thing if if London ended up being how it was back in the 60s i believe in the turn of the, this is a this is a stat i might have made up but uh, um i believe in the early 60s there were more people under 25 than over 25 living in london mm. and it was like, what an amazing amazing place it must have been to live i'm not under 25 certainly but um like it, amazing if, if london if, if cities turn into those sort of places again rather than being just full of big icebergs where people sit on <laughs> sit on impossibly expensive property 
Um, that would be amazing. I hope that's what the future would hold. I suspect it's not. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it'll come out, all, all this will come out in the wash, I guess, over the next few years about how much pressure people are put under to come back into work. But also the this, this, this sort of maybe decentralization of, of city. I mean, London is a pretty decentralized anyway, but, but the, the, the smaller villages that make up London become um, uh, more stuff ends up being in, on the outskirts as people don't find they have to go into the into the centre anymore. Maybe that would be true right throughout the UK. And maybe, again, I know there's lots of talk about levelling up, um, whatever that means. Uh, I mean, I hope it's true. I hope you know, that more prosperity can flow out from the, the, uh, the South East. But I, do, I, I think it's, it's interesting to think what will happen in, in that regard. But also, I mean, I think there are there are some you know there's some big problems coming down the pipe for um, well for everyone. There is going to be a, a you know a big big displacement of people. You would think if climate change is is what's going to happen, and I think it is a moral imperative to make sure that people have somewhere to live. Um, and what happens over the next 20, 30 years, regards to that, I think is going to be fascinating terrifying perhaps quite yeah i don't know I, I i'm not sure how our politics will deal with that uh, i think it's quite a frightening thing that particular thought um but that's i think what that that's the future of the city and i hopefully i mean high, high density living assuming there isn't a pathogen um flying around between everyone is actually great i like it i like it i like being close to things i like having my friends nearby um, I don't really want to see them by Zoom. I want to, I want to actually go and see them in person, and that's what, and that's what living in the city is about, isn't it? It's about being close to things. That reminds me a, a bit about the idea of the twenty-minute neighbourhoods that a lot of planners and, and government are thinking about, where you've got everything you need within a twenty-minute walk of where you live. So it means that you've got to have high density, so that things like frequent transport frequent public transport can be well used and is worth doing because there's enough people to use it but it means that everything like schools health social play libraries is all lo local ish and um, i think that's the way that's like what you're saying about people on the outskirts but if you have these kind of villagey type places i, I think that might be a way forward 20 minutes sounds quite good. In London, it seems to take an hour wherever, wherever you go, whether you're walking or taking a public transport. But this idea of, uh, of uh, you know, higher density living because you want to be closer, I think partially London is, uh, if we, you know, obviously... Uh, two of us in this conversation live, are living in London. <laughs> uh, is this um, the other European cities don't look like uh, London? I just came back from Rome, and it's a city where you perfectly well can walk to a lot of places. Uh, and but there are no houses in the city centre. Uh, there is there are no gardens in the city centre. Well, that on the ground, uh, but they are on top of buildings. And people do live perhaps not in tower blocks, but they live in this five six 
story buildings. And that's probably is most common to um, the majority of European cities that they are, people do live in flats and living in a house uh, is something rather rare if you're, if you're anywhere near the, the city center. So that's an in interesting question uh, um, in a way how much more dense the density can be for some of those places <laughs> that are not perhaps like uh, London or Glasgow or any UK cities. Yeah, I think that's one of the ideas for this 20-minute thing as well, that the housing is varied, so you don't get all kind of two-bedroom flats, which it makes for only a type of demographic. You, it, it's mixed so that you have got the high rises, the low rises, the, the five bedrooms, the one bedrooms, that kind of thing. So everything's a bit more mixed up. Because there will be there's there's a need for housing at, like always. Um and and I guess in cities, if there isn't any space, the only way is to go up, isn't it? So so I think that there will be more high rises but they've just got to be planned with the residents in mind in terms of sort of spec size and and amenities and and and, and especially green space either easy easily accessed or on the roof or you know down below yeah i think that that is the i think the best thing about living in london is the ready ready accessibility of of some yeah. pretty big green spaces you're never you're never too far away I don't think, and I think the last you say, COVID has only sort of uh, looked to sharpen that that sense. I mean, I don't have a garden, so um, I have readily <laughs> been frequenting the, the the various parks and yeah. green spaces of London uh, over the last eighteen months more so than yeah I would have done normally. I think. Yeah, Glasgow's the same. Its um its nickname is the Dear Green Place because it's got loads of parks, brilliant loads of parks. So thank goodness. Mm. <laughs> For the, the planners of back yeah. in the day. Oh. <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, London is such an odd place in regards to that the planning thing. It's such a hodgepodge of things that I think uh, this might be, again, my memory playing tricks on me, but that after the Great Fry of London, there was a plan, Christopher Wren had a plan to, to turn London into this beautiful gridded place. You know, not, not unlike, I guess, somewhere like Paris, but um, everyone was like, no, Christopher, we just need to get this done now. And it ended up just being built on the exact same plan of weird, windy roads, which give it its sort of odd medieval character in the city, um, which I know is impractical and is stupid, but is great. I love that. I, lo I love that sort of odd, strange, uh, totally irrational layout of the centre of London. I think it's brilliant. Um, so it's sort of like, say, Soho. Uh, Whereas, yeah, lots of just windy little bits and pieces. Same. Yeah, I agree with you completely on that one. And in a way, partially takes me to this idea of the of, of chaos and allowing for things that not to be overplanned. Uh, as it seems that the things that are perhaps not uh, designed only with a ruler uh, allow for, for a certain dose of imagination and creativity uh, both to to the people who, who who inhabit those spaces, that perhaps makes the the walks that you're using, Matthew, to come up with your ideas, the the walks that I take, come up with my ideas, uh, make this the, you know make those in interesting and never kind of the same, even if you might might be following exactly the same route uh, over a period of time. I think that um, in terms, yeah, of of creative things happening in places you might not expect. If I, I mean. 
head to sort of East London and various places. They've opened up in the archways of um, of uh, train bridges underneath train tracks um, that might have once been something else have been turned into artist workshops and that sort of thing. And the, yeah, unexpected places um, being filled in by creative people is is great. I mean, that that is part of what city's about, isn't it? I think it's having hubs and exciting places where things like that can happen. Absolutely. That's probably the best note to end up on the, the idea that cities ultimately are quite creative places and stimulating places. And that's, that's probably what we have time for. And uh, I would really like to thank you, Alison and Matthew, for all your thoughts and ideas and for your work on the Concrete and Ink book. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And all I have left to say now is that in the next episode, I'll be speaking to Chilean writer Aria Trabuco-Zeran and Welsh artist Bedwyr Williams. And we're going to talk about quite different places in the city, the malls and the museums, uh, and looking for uh, differences, similarities of those public spaces and questioning how public these public spaces are. And uh, you can find uh, the next episode via Teatro Mundi's website, as well as the usual podcasting platforms. And that's all we have time for. And thank you so much for listening and goodbye.